Our first passage this morning will be in Psalm 127. As I let you all know last week, we're, we're going to take a pause this week in our study of the Lord's Prayer, and we'll take that up again next week, and continue also then after the Lord's Prayer with the Sermon on the Mount. But today I wanted to focus our attention on you know, why it is we do child dedication services. So I want to do a teaching on that today. Why do we think it's an important thing to do? Why has this become a tradition for many uh, Christian churches? And why has it been in a tradition in our church? So I'll try to be answering those questions today. I'd like to begin by <clears throat> reading to you <clears throat> Psalm 127. We'll be having a bit of a sword drill today, looking at a number of texts. But we're going to start with this one. Beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 27, we read, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Let's take a moment to pray and ask for God's guidance. Holy Father, as always, we come before you as those of us who are believers here at least, come before you as those who have experienced the powerful working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We recall in these moments that it was through the power and work of your Holy Spirit that we were able to see and enter the kingdom of heaven, that we were born from above, that we were given saving faith about which we've sung and praised you for this morning. And so we come recognizing our complete dependence on your Holy Spirit as the one who opened our eyes to who Jesus really is and the truth of the gospel we rely upon him to open our eyes today to help us to see clearly the things you would have us to learn from your word. We come in dependence upon you, humbling and asking that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might understand what it is you desire to say to us today. And we will give you, Lord, all the glory that you so richly deserve, all the praise that you deserve for what you do in our hearts this morning through your word as we sit here longing to hear you speak. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, some years ago, in a book entitled The Quest for Character, Chuck Swindoll cited some sobering facts regarding the characteristics of a culture in decline. And he, he wrote of the work of a, of a sociologist and historian named Carl Zimmerman. And here's what he wrote. Sociologist and historian Carl Zimmerman, in his 1947 book, Family and Civilization, recorded his keen observations as he compared the disintegration of various cultures with the parallel decline of family life in those cultures. Eight specific patterns of domestic behavior typified the downward spiral of each culture that Zimmerman studied. The first was that marriage loses its sacredness and is frequently broken by divorce. 
So as he's studying decline of civilizations, he sees it starting in the family. And where does it begin? Breakup of marriages. The next is that the traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. The next is that feminist movements abound. All this sound familiar? The next is that there is increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. There's the acceleration of juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. There's the refusal of people with traditional marriages to accept their family responsibility. There's growing desire for an acceptance of adultery. And then there's increasing interest in and spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. If that's a culture in, in decline, uh, then America is a culture, Western civilization is a culture in decline, isn't it? There could be no doubt that such Cultural decline has been underway in America for some time now. So it's all the more important that we realize as believing parents the crucial role we play in our children's lives. We must resist the cultural pressure toward the disintegration of the family and what goes with it, the devaluation of children. Now, as we witness the dedication of three children this morning to the Lord, I want to focus our attention upon three important principles that believing parents must recognize in order to be godly parents in such an environment. First is this. Believing parents must recognize that their children are God's gift to them. People forget that. Secondly, believing parents must recognize that their children are privileged because of them. Forget that as well. And then thirdly, believing parents must recognize their special obligation to their children. The first point, again, is that believing parents must recognize that their children are God's gift to them. We've already seen this in our reading of Psalm 127, haven't we? But we'll take one more look at the text here, beginning in verse 3 of Psalm 127. We read this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the, of the womb is a reward Think of that. Your child that God has given you or your children are like God's reward to you. Most of us value, cherish rewards. <laughs> like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. We live in a culture in which they don't think there's happiness in having lots of children. They haven't a clue what happiness really is, do they? Or they wouldn't feel that way. He says, they shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with their enemies in the gate. This psalm is, is representative of the overall scriptural view of children, which teaches that they are a blessing from the Lord, a gift to be prized, and for which God should be praised and thanked. Sadly, this has not been the perspective of most people today, not even of many who claim to believe that the Bible is the word of God and who claim to derive their worldview from it. Sadly, although most Christian families tend to have more children than unbelieving families in our culture, there are many Christian families that don't want to have any children even 
or very few. It's almost they, they, they think that children are a bane rather than a blessing. It's very sad. In fact, Moody Monthly reported in December of 1989, this is some time ago, over 30 years, that parents rate their inability to spend enough time with their children as the greatest threat to the family. In a survey conducted for the Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Corporation, 35% pointed to time constraints as the most important reason for the decline in family values. We don't have family values because we just don't have time for it, in other words. But don't people tend to make time for what matters to them? Uh, another 22%, we read, uh, mentioned a lack of parental discipline. While 63% listed family as their greatest source of pleasure, only 44% described the quality of family life in America as good or excellent. And only 34% expected it to be good or excellent by 1999. Despite their expressed desire for more family time, two-thirds of those surveyed said, that they would probably accept a job that required more time away from home if it offered higher income or greater prestige. There's your priorities for you. If it's greater income or higher prestige, who cares about my kids? That's really what that says, isn't it? Now, as I already noted, that was in 1989. But does anyone think that the situation is better now? If anything, it's much worse. Clearly, what is valued most by such people is not the importance of their relationship with their children. Fewer couples are having children, and the couples that are having children are having fewer of them. And those who are having children are spending less time with them. People simply do not value children as the precious gifts from God that they really are. And that's just the simple truth. And anyone who professes to be a Christian that has that attitude is, has a sinful attitude, and he or she needs to repent of that attitude. That's my belief based on such scriptures as we've already read. But how different was the attitude of our forefathers in the faith? Take as an example Jacob. When he was returning from the land of Canaan, and he was confronted by his brother Esau, and remember he was very afraid that Esau was going to try to kill him, and uh, he sent his family on ahead and, and tried to hope that Esau would be merciful. And we're told in Genesis 33, 1 through 5. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and behold, uh, he looked and there saw Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. So this great forefather of the faith, Jacob, what was his attitude toward his children? They were a gracious gift to him by God. That's the attitude that we should have about our children. This morning, let us recognize anew that the children in our midst are a blessing from the Lord to us. When you're hanging out here on Sunday mornings and children are running around and playing 
and treating this building like they treat their own home, which is a good way to treat it. They shouldn't, they shouldn't do anything they, here that they don't do at home. They should be allowed to do here what they do at home. Church should be like home to them, in my view. And when you see these kids going up and down the hallway and laughing and playing, what should you be thinking? Thank you, God, for the blessing of these children in our midst. What a gift to us. What a reward. How happy we are to have these children in our midst. Praise you, Lord, for giving them to us. And we need to let these children know how precious they are to us. And not just with words, the importance of which cannot be minimized, but with our actions. As we do so, we want to keep in mind the next principle, our second main principle here, and that is that believing parents must recognize that their children are privileged because of them. Believing parents must recognize that their children are privileged because of them. It's a privilege to be born into a Christian home. Now, there are several passages of Scripture that indicate this principle. For example, Psalm 103 would be one of them. Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, tells us this. Again, that's Psalm 103, 17 and 18. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. What's this indicating? That our children, the children of believers, have a promise of God's mercy extended to them if they trust in him. That when God brings children into a believing home, it's so that his mercy can be extended to them. That's one purpose in giving us children, so that we can pass God's grace along to them, his mercy along to them, with the hope that for generations this will continue. That's certainly what we should be praying for, right? With so many children being born into the world who know nothing of God's promise of salvation through Christ, how privileged our children truly are to have Christian parents who can tell them of the love of God. Your children are born into a believing home by God's design. He wants them to hear the gospel from you. He wants you to share his promises with them. The Apostle Peter recognized the same idea when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost as is recorded in the book of Acts in this well-known text in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Again, that's Acts 2, verses 38 and 39, where we're told that Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the new covenant promise of remission of sins through Christ and of the gift of the Holy Spirit is made in this text to believe the children of believers if they too repent. But the assumption behind that is that they will hear of the need to repent and of salvation by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone, right? From their parents. That's the hidden assumption there without which this verse doesn't make any sense. So again, we see that our children are in a privileged position due to the 
fact that they're born into a Christian home. What a loving thing God has done for our children to bring them into a home where the love of Christ can be shown to them all the days that they're growing up. In fact, the Apostle Paul highlights this privileged position even more pointedly in his first epistle to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, in a passage that's often misunderstood, sadly. In 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 12, I'll read verses 12 through 16. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. Paul says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So he's dealing with mixed marriages where in, in Corinth, one of the spouses in a marriage became a believer and the other didn't. What do you do? Right? As long as the unbelieving spouse is, is willing to stay married to you, you shouldn't divorce. Then he goes on to say, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, the children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, this, this word for sanctified, hagiazo, means they're made holy. The unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse in some way. Uh, and, and the child is holy in some way because it's been born into a home with a believing parent. That's what Paul is saying. But then what does he mean by being made holy? Well, if you look through the scriptures, you'll see that there's two senses in which something can be sanctified or, or made holy. You can be sanctified or made holy in terms of being saved and right, being uh, progressing in Christ-likeness. That's the way Paul often uses the terminology of being sanctified, being set apart to God in order to become more like Christ, holy as God is holy. But it can also simply mean set, a, set apart unto God for a special purpose, in a special sense, without the connotation of being saved. We know that Paul means it in that second sense here because of what he goes on to say. He says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Well, he just said, if that, if that unbelieving husband stays married to you as a believer, he's in some sense sanctified. But Paul didn't mean by that saved. The hope is that being in this set-apart, sanctified state, he will then be saved. That's what he goes on to say. So we know the sense in which he's using the terminology here, and the same would apply to the child. The child is set apart in some sense to God by virtue of the fact that there's at least one believing parent who can share with that child the truth of the gospel with the hope that the child will be saved, just like there's the hope that the spouse will be saved. And he says the same about the husband, or, or do you... Or how do you know a husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul clearly sees the children of believers as being especially set apart to the Lord. Children that are born into a believing home are set apart to God in a special way. They're, they're given this privileged status 
of being hearers of the gospel, of having someone share with them the love of Christ and other, that other people don't get if they're born in unbelieving homes. They are in a unique position, just as the unbelieving husband or wife is sanctified or set apart to God and thus in a place where they have a responsibility and the, and the privilege of hearing the gospel and the possibility of experiencing salvation, as we saw in verse 16. So the children are holy or set apart to God and also in a unique position in which they have the opportunity of salvation held out to them from the very beginning. I think uh, probably my oldest son will tell you that there's never a day he didn't believe in Jesus. He believes in Jesus and trusts him as Lord and Savior today. That's because he was born into a believing home and he heard about it all his life. He heard about Christ. And there, there are some people that think, you know, who have grown up in a Christian home like that and think, you know, I hear these other people who are, you know, had these terrible lives and you know, maybe the guy was a drunkard or, you know, and, uh, and a philanderer and, and then he had this sudden experience of salvation. His life radically changed. And sometimes children who have grown up in those believing homes will almost envy that kind of testimony, that miraculous, powerful change. And I always remind them, those of us who have been in that category, our temptation is to envy you. Because God kept you from all that by his grace. Of course, we shouldn't envy each other because God's plan was perfect for each one of us in his own time, right? But if, if you've grown up in a Christian home and you've never had these terrible sins that went off committed, well, that was the grace of God. And a, that's a miracle that that happened. That's the power of the Spirit that brought that about. And he should give, be given all the praise and glory. And don't think you have a less than testimony. That's a powerful testimony of God's preserving grace. Many of us wish we'd had that testimony, right? Because <laughs> there's a lot of pain in our lives we could have foregone, perhaps, if we'd had it, right? But then we remember uh, we don't complain against God's plan because it was the perfect plan for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known him. Maybe that's what it took for me to come to know Christ. At any rate, our children get to be in that position where they can have that testimony one day of God's preserving grace throughout their lives. Powerful testimony of the power of God to work righteousness in the life of a person. With such great privileges as our children have to be born or to be adopted, Perhaps into a believing family, they also have a great responsibility. This morning, our focus is on the responsibility of the parents, which leads us to our final point, our third and final point. And that is that believing parents must recognize their special obligation to their children. We've seen some of that already, but believing parents must recognize their special obligation to their children. Now, many of you may think that this point goes without say. Uh, especially given the scripture passages we've already examined that demonstrate the believing parents must recognize that their children are God's gift to them and are privileged because of them. But we've also considered some of the clear evidence that our culture increasingly undermines these principles. And this is no less true of this third principle concerning our special obligation to our children. Consider, for example, the research of when Yuri 
Broffenbrenner, that's a mouthful. This is cited by Mark DeVries in a book called Family-Based Youth Ministry. Here's what he writes. Cornell University's Yuri Broffenbrenner, I think I got it right, cites nine uh, specific changes that have taken place during the past generation which have increasingly separated children and youth from the world of adults, especially the adults in their own families. And here's the nine things that he lists, and you may agree with some of these things and not with others. See what you think. First, father's vocational choices remove them from the home for lengthy periods of time. Secondly, there's an increase in the number of working mothers so that both parents are out of the home for much of the time. Thirdly, there's a critical escalation in the divorce rate. Fourth, there's a rapid increase in single-parent families. Fifth, there's a steady decline in the extended family. Uh, Less and less people have contact with their extended families, especially in in a culture in which we're so spread out because of modern ability to travel so easily, mainly. Sixth, there's the evolution of the physical environment of the home with family rooms, playrooms, and master bedrooms, and so forth. We have bigger houses with more rooms, and we can just be in different parts of the house, right? Seventh, there's the replacement of adults by the peer group. And I could uh, add the way all too many churches seem to encourage this through the way they conduct their youth ministries. There are churches where the first thing that happens with the little children when you get to church is they're you know, shuffled off to some other place for children's church. And then there's some churches have youth church services then all the way up through high school. Everything's always separated. They, they never worship with their parents or with the adults in the church. At all. And then we wonder when it's time to come up and go to big people church. They have no stomach for it. They don't want it. They they want to keep being treated like kids. I'll get off that hobby horse. The eighth thing he says is the isolation of children from the work world. There was a time in our culture where kids grew up working on the farm with their parents or in some trade with dad or in the bakery downstairs and they lived upstairs or what have you and they they were just around each other a lot and saw their parents conducting business and living out their lives and they just don't do that anymore. The ninth thing he says is the insulation of schools from the rest of society and that's got to, to be a really big problem. The public school system in our country works hard at isolating your kids from you. Keeping secrets with their kids from you. So your kid can go to school and be convinced that he or she might not really be a boy or a girl. And then secretly get another name and everything else and then hide it from the parents. That's gotten really, really bad now. Not everywhere. But it's getting more and more common. The author writes that this last factor has caused Broffenbrenner to describe the current U.S. educational system as one of the most potent breeding grounds for alienation in American society. 
Now, when he wrote these words in 1974, this trend towards isolation was in full swing, and it has not been significantly checked since that time. I agree. Things are worse than ever. But notice the difference in perspective that we find in the Bible, which assumes that we will spend time with our children, will spend the time that it takes, the necessary time that it takes to demonstrate our love for God to them and to show them the importance of a daily walk with God. Uh, Remember in this regard the crucial passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read here from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 7. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 7. Here's what this says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. We're to spend the time with our children to demonstrate that we love God with all our hearts. In that passage, that's what our children are supposed to be seeing. That's what we're supposed to be teaching them. The importance of loving God with all your heart and of having his word in your heart. That it's not just something you spout that you don't really believe. He's talking about a home that isn't hypocritical, but it's a sincere home that sincerely loves the God, right? The true God, the one God, and sincerely wants his word in their hearts. So we spend the time with them that we should to show them we love God with all our hearts And we show that love in every aspect of our lives. When we sit in our houses, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up, as God says in Deuteronomy 6-7. That's just a way of saying all throughout the day, take every opportunity you can to be with your children. And when you're with your children, be loving God with all your heart, mind and soul and strength, relying on his word from your heart and teaching that to your kids. That they should love God with all their heart that nothing matters more than having God in their heart. So we're, tr- we're to communicate the truth about God and a relationship with him at all times. And that means also we're going to be available to answer any questions and take advantage of any teaching opportunities that come up. There should be plenty of them. As we saw earlier, we live in a culture that increasingly separates families and alienates children. But we also live in a culture in which divorce is rampant. And sadly, this has all too often affected Christians as well as the non-believing population. Now, I say Christians, I mean professing Christians. I think Christians who really are sincere followers of Christ, I don't think the divorce rate among them is as high as the rest of the culture. But among professing Christians, who some of whom may not really even know the Lord, well, maybe it is as high. And we're not surprised, because they're not the kind who are really loving God with all their heart. They're mouthing it, and they don't really believe it, right? But these people who profess to be Christians, they, they have a divorce rate that's pretty high, too, despite the negative effects it may have on their own children. In fact, as I've observed over the years, a seemingly limitless ability for such people to rationalize their divorces and to downplay the possible effects on the children who are involved. 
There are none so blind as those who refuse to see. And people who are, who are wanting to get divorced are absolutely blind, usually, to the impact it will have on their kids. And they will try all kinds of ways of rationalizing how it's really better for their kids if they get divorced. Despite the fact that there's increasing evidence of the terrible effects that divorce has often had in the lives of children who've had to endure the destruction of their parents' marriages. Remember many years ago, I came from a divorced home. My dad left one day, watched him drive away. Didn't know what was going on. Everybody was crying. Didn't see him for over a year. I was five then. My mother moved in with a man that didn't like kids and dumped us all on my dad's four kids on my dad's doorstep. And I lived with him for a while. Eventually married another woman. And I remember one time as a teenager, I don't remember exactly what age. I said, I, you don't really love me. I said, yes, I do. Come on, you know I love you. Well, that's what you told my mother. Maybe I shouldn't have said that to him. That's how I felt. And that's how he treated me, by the way. Um, I still pray for his repentance <laughs> to this day, because I love him. So I know what I'm talking about a little bit. I've experienced some of this. Christians shouldn't need such evidence, though to convince them about how destructive divorce can be. God has weighed in on this matter in the clearest of terms. Consider, for example, his words to the prophet Malachi. The prophet Malachi. This is in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16. It says this. And he's listing things that the Israelites are doing. They're professing faith in him, but they're hypocritically you know, denying him in all kinds of ways. And he's listed one thing, and now he's listening the second thing. Pardon me. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. Usually that, people would see that as a sincere thing, right? But people can cry fake tears. That's what they were doing. They were crying for themselves, right? Uh, but not as they should have been. It was in a godly sorrow, as Paul says, that leads to repentance, and we'll see that. The second thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Why is God not accepting our supposed, you know, sacrifice? And the answer is because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with, you, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So in other words, you're coming in here and worshiping and weeping and pretending to be repentant, but you hate your wife. You pretend to love me and be in covenant with me and care about a covenant with me if you can't keep your covenant with your wife. You hypocrite. That's what he's basically saying here. Don't come to me and pretend you're a righteous person if you hate your wife and you want to divorce your wife, right? Because he goes on to say, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? We won't get into what that means this morning. It will take us too far afield. 
And why one? He seeks godly offspring. And we've seen some evidence of that already. One of the reasons, perhaps, that God is putting children into Christian homes is maybe he wants them to become Christians themselves, right? And so he goes on to say uh, here, therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence. Says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed your spirit and do not deal treacherously. So they're getting tired of their wives and divorcing them and acting like it doesn't matter. And they're pretending that they love God when they can't even do the basic things God has commanded them to do, love their wives. Now, the first part of verse 16 could also be translated this way. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garments with violence. It could be taken either way. But however it is translated, God is saying that divorce is a violent act in some way. Now, this is clearly imagery that he's using. And the imagery that he uses is quite graphic, in which he compares the emotional violence of divorce to the physical violence of the man whose garments are covered with blood after brutally attacking another. He's imagining someone who's been, in, say, in a battle and hacked somebody up with a sword and got blood all over himself. He's saying, that's what divorce is like. That's the kind of destruction it wreaks, right, in a family. It's like you've emotionally got blood all over you. There's emotional violence that you've done. He couldn't have been more graphic and more clear in how terrible the effects of divorce are in his imagery here. Divorce is a terrible thing indeed, and it is to be hated and to avoid it if at all possible. Remember, Paul did talk about in 1 Corinthians 7 of someone coming to faith in Christ and their spouse does it and their spouse won't stay with them. That's a tragic thing. Paul says you should try to stay together. Even then, when you're so incompatible, you should try to have peace and stay together. But if that unbeliever won't, then you're, you're, you're free. You're not under bondage, he says. But even in that situation, he doesn't want you to get divorced. It's not God's best. It's a terrible thing. We should hate it. It's a really sad state of affairs that so many of the children in our nation today have either suffered the effects of divorce or, or live in fear of it happening to their parents. Consider these findings in a 1990 book uh, called Back to the Bible Today. He was citing some, some uh, findings of a, of a study called Children's Greatest Fears. He writes that researchers at Johns Hopkins University reported that 30 years ago, now this was written in 1990, 30 years ago from that time, the greatest fears of grade school children were these, animals, being in a dark room, high places, strangers, and loud noises. By 1990, kids were afraid of the following, divorce, number one. Nuclear war, cancer, pollution, and being mugged. If that doesn't show you a difference in society, I don't know what does. 
Now, although this study was done over 30 years ago, by my count here, uh, can anyone doubt that divorce would still be somewhere at the top of the list of things that children fear? Do we have any reason to assume that's changed? Can we doubt that they're right to fear it? They have good reason to fear it. In many cases in, in our culture, maybe not in a good Christian home, where there's a strong marriage. But there's a lot of kids out there who are not in that position, in that privileged position, in that holy position. They've got to live with this fear. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? But doesn't it should? Yet I have lost track of the amount of times that I've heard those who have been divorced or contemplating divorce claim that it was really best for the children. For example, they might say something like this. It is certainly better for the children if we divorce than for them to live in a house where we're fighting all the time. And my response is always, then learn how to get along and stop fighting. You could grow up and do that. You know? You could... Stop being selfish and do that if you really care to what's best for your children, like you say you do. No, you're just rationalizing wanting to get divorced. You don't want to do the hard work to have a strong marriage. Sometimes it's work. Or they may say something like this. It isn't right that we should stay together just for the kids when we are so unhappy with one another. My response is that next to the importance of honoring Christ in your marriage, I can think of no better reason to stay together and to learn to love each other and be happy together than the welfare of your kids. If that can't motivate you to want to change, then you don't love your kids like you claim you do. That's just the cold, hard truth. You can see I don't have a lot of patience for these things. You know why? Because God hates divorce, and so do I. I despise it. To all such people, far too many of whom these days even claim to be Christians, I say, remember that divorce covers one's garments with violence. You don't get out of these things unscathed, and your kids don't, if you have children. That violence, in fact, is felt most of all by the children who have been given to you by God as his precious gift. And if you just stop to remember that, maybe you'd figure out how to get along again. Because he's given your responsibility to them so that they can grow up in, in a family where they hear of him. So we've seen from the Old Testament that we have an obligation to spend the necessary time with our children in order to teach them how to love God with all of their hearts. We need to recognize that God has obligated us to have strong marriages in order for that to happen. We should model a strong Christ-like marriage to our children. Paul says it shows the love of Christ for his church when we do that. Let's briefly consider just a couple of other New Testament passages before we finish here. Beginning with Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he says this in Ephesians 6.4, And you, fathers meaning fathers and mothers, because there's this principle in the Bible of male representative headship, right? It's built into the language of 
right? Um, when he, he speaks to the head of the home, but he means both parents. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training in the admonition of the Lord. That's the job of a Christian parent. That's the most important job you have as a Christian parent. It's not whatever vocation you have. That's not your most important job. Your most important job is bringing up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's a high and holy calling. And it should come first. I thank God that in the lives of my kids who have children, it does. That they model this. I'm so proud of them. Because <laughs> uh, they, they do model this. And they've taken some career hits sometimes even in order for this to happen. But whatever else that verse means, it certainly indicates that our primary goal as parents ought to be to lead our children to Christ. Because that's what it means to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. To help them to trust in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, to obey him as their Lord. We mustn't then mistreat them and provoke them to wrath, which will obscure the love of God that we're trying to share with them. Now, mind you, uh, Paul's not assuming when he says, do not provoke your children to wrath, that any time your child is mad at you, that you've sinly, sinfully provoked them. Children can be mad for no good reason at all, and Paul knows that. But he also knows that sometimes we can give our children just cause to be angry at us. And that's what he's talking about when he says don't provoke them to wrath. Um, in fact, in a parallel passage, he puts it this way in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, right? Lest they become discouraged or as the new american standard translates it fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart so there paul gives us a hint to when we know that we're sinfully how can you know if you're sinfully provoking your child to wrath are they getting discouraged is a good clue Paul has in mind ways in which parents can anger or exasperate their children to the point that they become discouraged. You ever seen a kid that says, I can never please my father. I'm just going to quit trying. There's no point in trying to please him. It's impossible. That kid has been exasperated to the point of discouragement. If I see that in a kid, I want to have a talk with dad. That's not raising your child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. When you break their spirit like that. It's a bad thing. Paul doesn't want us doing that. It hides the love of God from them. Rather than revealing it to them. And it gives them the, the notion that they, God will never love them either. That's terrible. I'll just close by saying that the primary antidote to such poor parenting as we've talked about in some respects here is to just do as Paul commands and bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And as we've seen in our journey through Scripture this morning, this at least means that believing parents must recognize that their children are truly God's gift to them. And we need to start viewing them that way if we don't. That believing parents must recognize that their children are privileged because of them. Keep that in mind. 
and also that believing parents must recognize their special obligation to their children. God has given you a high and holy calling. There is no greater calling, perhaps, in the world than to raise godly children. And this is why many of us have adopted the practice of dedicating our children to the Lord before our church body. We want to say before the church body, this is our perspective. We embrace it. We acknowledge it before the congregation. We hold ourselves accountable to this high calling. And we want your help in doing it. That's what child dedications are about. It's a good thing to do. It's a good tradition to have. And so we hang on to that tradition. 